0: Nice of Josh just step in this week and lead. Michael's on vacation too, like seemingly the rest of Michigan, and uh, uh, Josh was able to step in and lead worship for us this week. That's really great. Michael's over in Wisconsin with his family, enjoying a week away. Um, last November is when we stepped into this study in the Book of Revelation. Does it seem like it's been that long to you? Some of you are saying, "Yes, absolutely." <laughs> Um, It's been uh, 27 weeks that we've been doing this study, and after today, there'll only be uh, 13 of the studies left in the book of Revelation, so really clicking along now, and and we're getting into the stuff in which we're getting close to the return of the King, the second coming of Jesus. That's going to be really exciting, and fortunately, that arrives right about the time when fall kicks off, so a lot of people will be very geared up to be hearing about the second coming of Jesus but this particular time right now, I know that people are, are feeling the weight of being in the middle of Revelation. Actually, we're beyond the middle point, but it's, it's uh, 27 weeks into it. And I hear from people who are feeling, we'll call it weary, Revelation weary. You're not sure if you can bear any more of this because the weight of the material is so heavy. Today is considerably more of a bright spot you might consider what today is, is like a parenthesis around Revelation, tribulation events. So you could put big brackets around Revelation chapter 14 because it's like a pause. Somebody hit the pause button, and John jumps way forward in time beyond the tribulation to the time of the second coming, and he sees Jesus on planet Earth. And it's a very interesting little section here. It's kind of like a timeout. Now, if we do a timeout properly, it would include something like an overview. So if we think just for a moment of where we've been, Revelation chapter 1, John standing on an island on Patmos, Mediterranean Ocean, and sees Jesus and hears this voice. And Jesus says, come up here, I'm about to show you some things. And begins to unveil to him chapter 2 and chapter 3 what he wants to say to his church. Chapter 4, John actually gets to see the throne room of heaven and see where Jesus resides, where God's throne is at. Chapter 5 is the unveiling of the seals, the the scroll that has the judgments. And chapter 6 is the beginning of the breaking of the seals. Uh, We went from chapter 6 all the way to chapter 10 with the judgments being poured out on the earth. Those judgments took form in the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments. And then when we hit chapter 10, we got to start seeing things through the eyes of satanic activity, through the eyes of what the Antichrist would be doing, through the eyes of the dragon, Satan, through the eyes of the false prophet, as you learned about last week. And then when you hit today, chapter 14, is when the parenthesis occurs. There's a bracket on either side of it which shows us specifically that there is a question that was asked way back in Revelation chapter 6 that is answered in Revelation chapter 14. You might remember the question that was asked. Now remember what we saw in the judgments. We saw earthquakes and famines, pestilence, plagues, mass death over planet earth, billions of people dying. And in the midst of all that, There was a mega earthquake. Remember, a great earthquake that caused mountains to collapse. And scripture says kings and rulers, military commanders, leaders, the rich and the poor, slave and the free, hid themselves in mountains and asked a question Who is able to stand? Now remember, that's only at the midpoint of the tribulation. And already they're saying, Who's going to endure this? We saw in Revelation 7 the introduction of a group of people called the 144,000. They reappear now in Revelation chapter 14. The reason you don't have handout study notes today is because what 14 is is kind of a review of what you learned about those 144,000. But today, considerably more in-depth about this second coming of Jesus and these 144,000 who stand with him, At the end of the tribulation. So we're going to take first verse, Revelation 14, verse 1. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up there. And what you're seeing here is like somebody hits a fast forward button and we jump all the way to the end, to the end of the tribulation, to the second coming of Jesus. So Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1 starts out by saying this Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his father written on their foreheads. you might remember that word from when we first started Revelation study. The word, behold, I do, I-D-O-O-U, the Greek word. It means, wow, I can't believe I'm seeing this. It's behold, I looked, and behold, what's so fantastic about this? What in the world captured John's attention when he stands back and says, unbelievable, wow, I'm seeing the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Why is this so remarkable? Well, so far, we've seen the Lamb slain, we've seen the Lamb glorified, we've seen the Lamb exalted, we've seen the Lamb, the Redeemer, we've seen the Lamb called the Shepherd, but now John sees him standing on Mount Zion. This is a monumental moment in human existence. This is a moment in which Jesus sets up the kingdom and begins the millennial reign. And John's jumped way forward in time in seeing this in this brief verse. First understand what it means when he says, I see the Lamb standing. Because this word is used of you also. I'll show you a little bit later in the passage. Look first with me at the word stand. Histame, it means to abide, to establish, set up staunch, stand firm, unmovable. What do you associate that with? When you think of the king of England, or in this case, we have a queen these days, a the queen of England, she has a throne. Her throne sits in the throne room. Her throne is histame. It means it's fixed. This is a word that's used of something that cannot be moved. It's permanent. So John sees the Lamb of God standing on this mountain, meaning fixed. He's ready to rule. It's a word that's used of someone who is in a ruling position, histame. So you see an association of this word stand with Mount Zion. When you hear, for instance, Ahmadinejad in Iran, he's the president of the the Islamic nation of Iran, when he says something like the Zionist nation in reference to Israel, this is where it comes from, Zion. This word Zion is associated with the mountain that surrounds Jerusalem. So it's become a nickname for Jewish people. Israelites are called the Zionist nation. This word Zion comes right out of the text of the Old Testament, Psalm 48 two. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth, is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. So whenever you see Mount Zion in Scripture, it's talking about Jerusalem. You have to put the two together. So Isaiah wrote about this moment that John is seeing. Look with me up on the screen, Isaiah 24:23. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. The word Lord of hosts, any time you see that in the Bible, is always talking about Jesus. It means the commander of the armies of heaven. That's the word Lord of hosts. So, you see this Lord of hosts reigning on Mount Zion according to Isaiah. David wrote about this also, Psalms 2 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mount, mo- mountain. This is fulfillment, what you're seeing here that John's writing about in Revelation 14. It's the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies, and it's arriving in this passage. This scene is describing the return of Jesus to earth, the second coming of Jesus. And with him, we see there's 144,000 people, real, live people, 144,000 who have lived through the tribulation, who have named the name of God, and we discovered in Revelation 7 that there's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel, equaling 144,000. This is a very unique group in redemptive history. Look with me up on the screen at a quote that I absolutely love. I love reading John Phillips' materials because he is so expressive in the way that he describes Scripture. This is his take in describing the 144,000. "'No other age has produced a company like this, a veritable army of militant believers marching unscathed through every form of danger. It is theirs to defy the dragon and to bait the beast. Their calling is to preach the gospel from the housetops.' when even to name the name of Christ calls for the most de- dreadful penalties. They have been surrounded, these latter-day Jobs with impenetrable hedges, able to laugh to scorn all the grand inquisitors of hell. They walk the streets in broad daylight, careless of teeth-gnashing rage of their would-be torturers and assassins, true witnesses of Jehovah in the most terrible era of the history of mankind." People don't write like that anymore. Isn't that cool? It's very, very descriptive. John Phillips, a great theologian. Here's one thing I want you to note when you read the text. It says, standing with him were 144,000. Do you notice there isn't one missing? Revelation chapter 7 said 144,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. They've gone through the entire seven years, and it doesn't say with him were 130,000. It doesn't say with him were 139,000. It says with him are 144,000. They have been protected all the way through. This is the shielding power of your God. The worst time in the history of the world. Pestilence, plagues, famine, earthquakes, massive global war, demons unleashed on the earth, and every single one of them are at the end. These 144,000, they march to a beat of a different drum. But they are human, just like us. Yet they have discovered something about surviving characteristics. Despite Satan's best efforts to wipe them out, they're still here, and they meet Christ at his second coming. So this is like a big reunion day. You'd have to ask yourself what makes them so invincible? How in the world do these survive all the way to the end? Now, they've got the seal of God upon them, clearly. But there are certain features that characterize these 144,000. And this text shows us what it is specifically. I'm going to show you that in just a minute. It says on here next, it says, His name is on them. The name of His Father is written on their foreheads. So we know from what we've studied so far that the unbelievers have the mark of the beast, 666, on them. And the believers in God... Have the mark of God upon them, and so since he 's marked them as His own, God will not allow them to be harmed; they 're protected all the way through. This is very consistent with the nature of God to protect and keep His own. Let me refer you back to Philippians one six. you see it up on the screen. for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jude 24 says this, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand, that's the word histame, in his presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. This is the keeping nature of your God, protecting you. Yes, he may cause physical harm or allow physical harm to come to us. In the case of these individuals, 144,000, he protects them physically but they're there at the end, ready to enter into the millennial kingdom just like you will be because of the protecting power of God. So here, these ones are pictured as victors standing right alongside the Lamb of God. These are the nikao that you learned about in the early part of Revelation. N-I-K-A-H-O, the Greek word for overcomer, the one who gets the victory, the word Nike, the one who is the conqueror. So before John can describe them to us, before he can give us the characteristics, he gets distracted. Something else happens in verse 2. "'And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song.' except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. Now John's about to describe to us who these are and their characteristics, but before he can, he gets distracted because praise breaks out in heaven. He's looking at Jesus standing on Mount Zion with 144,000, and all of a sudden he hears this loud rushing water sound. Any of you stood next to Niagara Falls before? You heard the rush, the roar? That's what this is describing. The roar that you can hear for up to a mile away. John's hearing it out of heaven. And he said, it sounds like thunder, like the ongoing roll of thunder. The way it's actually written in Greek means that it continued on and on and continued to build. But he says in the midst of it, it sounds like harps. It sounds like a harpist playing their harps. You notice, first of all, he says, a voice, meaning singular. I heard a voice from heaven. And he struggles to describe it. Three times in two sentences, he uses the word like. It's like this, but it's like this. But it's like this. And it's continuous going on. In Ezekiel, the prophet described God's voice as the voice of thunder. In Revelation, when Jesus speaks, Scripture calls Jesus' voice... The voice of thunder. I don't think that's what you're hearing today. This is the case here that I believe what's being described is the voice of the choirs of angels because of what happens next. They sang a new song. You have to take the word they and say, who is they? First he says, I hear this voice, this sound, but then he makes it plural and says, they sang a new song. The angels are singing a new song. In the Old Testament, when they sang a new song, it was always referring back to something God had done, something magnificent. Think of the time of the Ten Commandments. The children of Israel cross the Red Sea. Water opens up before them. They get to the other side. What do they do? They break out in song. They begin singing about God. They're singing a new song. So that's what you see going on here. The word is kainos. Look with me up on the screen at the definition for new, especially in freshness, fresh in response or in understanding. If you ask me to define the word new hope, the reason we chose the name new hope for the church is because of that word freshness, a whole new understanding, fresh hope, a fresh Song being sung here. A new understanding because of a new revelation, something that's been given to them. A new understanding of God's keeping power. There they are at the end, but no one else can learn the song. Isn't that kind of curious? No one else can learn it but the 144,000. Here's what that's saying. If you've ever gone to, perhaps, a baseball stadium and you've watched the national anthem being played, and you see some people, maybe the players on the field, just going through the motions, their lips are moving. They're not really engaged. They're just trying to get through the action. But scan the crowd, and I guarantee you, you can pick out the veterans of our American military because their lips are quivering. When they see the flag and they sing the song, it means something different to them. Young people who think they are impervious to singing the national anthem who go to the Olympics and stand on the podium and have a United States medal placed around their neck and hear their national anthem played, their lips quiver and the tears stream down their face because it means something new. That's what's going on here. There's a new song. They know the meaning Because no one else has lived through what they have lived through. And the angels are singing about this and they get it. They understand it. But no one else can get it because they haven't gone through what these ones have gone through. You can write a song that I cannot write. You have an individual journey that God has taken you through. Something very unique about your own personal walk with God. Your own testimony. It means something specific to you that others can't entirely understand but it's fresh and that's why it's important that you tell your story now John jumps back into verse 4 as we wrap this up and he tells us about the character of these individuals look with me at verse 4 these are the ones who have not been defiled with women for they have kept themselves chaste. these are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes These have been purchased from among men as firstfruits to God and to the Lamb, and no lie was found in their mouth. They are blameless. Well, we hate to think of women defiling men, so I want to explain that to you, what that means. Because specifically when it says they're not defiled with women, it indicates something very specific. It means they are separated. They have been put apart. You know the word that's used today many times in our national news media of a holy war, when you think of the nation of Islam launching its assaults against Israel, the word holy war is used a lot. That word holy war comes from the Old Testament. It was something God called the warriors to do from time many thousands of years ago when he asked the children of Israel to go to battle on behalf of the nation of Israel. They were to set themselves apart. The men who would be the warriors were to stay away from women for a period of time to focus completely upon the purpose of the battle. That was what it meant to be chased, to be separated for God. So these individuals here are finding themselves separated for a specific reason. Here's the reason. During the tribulation, sexual sin will be rampant upon planet earth in such a way that we can't begin to imagine it. We believe that we live during an immoral time, and in the midst of the society that we're in, there is great immorality. But it does not begin to measure up to what will happen during the most perverse time on planet Earth, during the midst of the tribulation, when all restraints are taken off. Let me remind you again what Second Thessalonians says. Look with me up on the screen. Second Thessalonians 2.6 And you know, now this is speaking of the Antichrist, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. Verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, meaning the Holy Spirit, will do so until he is taken out of the way. Verse 9. One whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all the power and signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness. All restraint is removed, and sin moves across the earth like a flood, totally unrestrained. And these 144,000 live in the midst of a very perverse culture, and they've been set apart from their culture and they shine like beacons in the night. They can be seen because they are so separated for God's purposes. I know within our church at New Hope, there's young men and young women who intend to go into full-time ministry. I have talked to them individually. Here's a quote that comes from an individual who wrote it in the 1800s, a pastor in Scotland, speaking to young men who were thinking of becoming pastors about the intent of keeping themselves pure. Look with me up on the screen. Pastor Robert Murray McShane. Do not forget the culture of the inner man, I mean of the heart, how diligently the Calvary officer keeps his saber clean and sharp. Every stain he rubs off with the greatest care. Remember, you are God's sword, his instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name. In great measure, according to the purity and perfections of the instrument, will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses, so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. It's a remarkable characteristic. This man was speaking to a graduate class of young men who wanted to go into ministry. And his command to them was, keep yourselves pure. So what you see here in Scripture is these young men, these 144,000, were successful because they kept themselves apart. They were not defiled. They kept themselves pure from the attractions of the world. Look at the next thing. They followed the lamb wherever he goes. And John's using some very familiar language. He actually wrote about this when he was a young man some 60 years earlier. Look what he wrote here when we look at John 10, 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. He's quoting Jesus. Jesus said, I am the shepherd, you are my sheep, and you follow me. We see that in the revelation of the 144,000. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They exemplify this, purpose. They set themselves apart for their destiny, what they've been called to do. Very distinct setting everything else aside. They're the epitome of decisive action, and they move forward following the king, the Nicao Christian, the ones who have overcome. Look with me on the screen, Romans 12, 1 and 2. This is what it says. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. People who are decisive. They've set everything else aside, moving forward in God's purpose. Look at the next characteristic. It says, no lie was found in their mouth. If you had to characterize the time of the tribulation by one thing, you would characterize it by deception constant lying. Satan is the father of lies. He's in control of the planet at this time. At this time when the age is filled with lies, they stand for truth, God's truth. They refuse to bow their knee to the Antichrist and they speak the truth even though it's at the risk of their own existence. They can do this during this period of time. How much more can you do it if during the worst time on planet earth they can refuse to lie they can refuse to be defiled they can follow the lamb wherever he goes if they can do it during the tribulation how much more during this time when we live there has never been on planet earth anything to equal men and women who are set apart for the purposes of god let me take you back to just a few very familiar bible characters people that you would think of as having these kind of qualities. When you think of Joseph, you think of what? Uncompromising. When you think of Daniel, what do you think of? Confident in the word of God. When you think of Esther, what do you think of? Resolute, very deliberate in what she did. Gideon, he's fearless in the face of enemies. He moves forward for God. David, singleness of heart, completely sold out to his purposes. Paul, Unashamed. I am unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter, bold. You take all those characteristics and wrap them into one, you've got the 144,000 moving throughout the worst time on planet Earth. But these are humans. Are they battle weary? Yes, absolutely. They've lived through a holocaust, but they stand with the king of kings on Mount Zion. That's why John's going, wow, this is unbelievable. Not only do I get to see prophecy fulfilled, but the 144,000 I learned about previously, there they are. And they're all there. They're all intact. Through it all, they'll, they will be the Nika'o, the overcomers, just like us. I want you to notice the last characteristic. It says this, they are Are blameless. Does that mean they're sinless? No. There is no human that is sinless. Every one of us has sin. Look with me up on the screen. Proverbs twenty verse nine. Who can say I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from sin? First John one eight. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. We are all sinners, and we all need a Savior. That's why we get to celebrate communion this morning. Because we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so he came for us to buy us back. Rather, not that they're sinless, but they're above reproach. They're above accusations. Someone to whom the lost world can be drawn. Think with me, church. Why did God set them apart? So that they would do what? Be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they would be attractive to call people into the kingdom, so that they could witness to the world. How did they do that? Undefiled, blameless, no lie was found in their mouth. They followed the lamb wherever he went. And at the end, they stood with the king of kings. What an incredible kingdom force this will be. To put this in perspective, There is, perhaps, on planet Earth today, 50,000 missionaries, Christian missionaries. Triple that number and then add in all those characteristics and you can see why during the tribulation you have the greatest soul harvest the world has ever known because these are warriors for the kingdom. I guarantee you, you can be an image bearer for Christ like these individuals. Now, God didn't say that he's going to protect your life physically like he's going to that he needs to during this time because he doesn't want them killed. But you can be an image bearer, and God can protect you while you're working for him. He can shield you. You only need two ingredients. The first one is you've got to want to. You've got to want to with everything in you and chase after it and letting nothing stop you. You've got to pursue it. And the second one is, this is the most primary characteristic. You've got to belong to God. Let me take you back to what we read earlier from Jude, verse 24. Remember what you read? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. Do you want to stand in his presence, blameless? And with great joy, you have to belong to the one who can do it. So who's the him that we're referring to there? When it says, to him who is able, if I wasn't a believer, I'd say, I want to know who that him is. I'm going to underline that in my Bible. The him is Jesus. He is the one who is able to keep you from stumbling. He is the one who's going to make you histamei. Remember the word? We set up the throne. It's firm. It's unmovable. Scripture says he's able to keep you not only from stumbling, but he's able to make you firm to stand. To stand for what? To stand for the kingdom. And then he will present you in his glory. That's the promise we find in Scripture. You know, in the King James Version, this is the way it actually reads. This is a more accurate interpretation here. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. This is the way it ends. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forevermore. The word faultless was not taken over into the NASB. It's used in the King James Version, but it's more accurate because no one will be able to accuse you before the king. Satan will have been wiped out at that point. There will be nothing thrown against you for your previous sinful activities because of what the lamb did to purchase you back. So he can present you faultless before the father. What a great promise, church. What a wonderful promise for us. So you can celebrate communion with new joy in your heart because you've been redeemed.